0: We're doing it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the trying to be better with Joel and Steve podcast. I love that every time I I introduce, (laughs) I think that Steve just gets such a kick out of the fact that we, I don't know, it's just, I love your giddiness. Every time I do the intro, it
1: makes me so happy. It really, truly does.
0: It really does. We get that, uh, we get that laugh out of you, which well, is,
1: you know, market research has indicated that people really like it when I laugh like Jeff Bridges. So
0: yes, you do have the Jeff Bridges thing. And it is like, I listened to a couple episodes ago and it was like, you were in full Jeff Bridges mode, full dude. It's mode. not intentional. I, Although since Matt
1: said that, I'm like, okay, now yeah. I can't get it out of my head.
0: Yes. It's so good. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. We have uh, a really special guest. Um, tonight, we're uh, finally going on our blind date that we've uh, teased the last few episodes. Um, but before we get to any of that, uh, follow us on Instagram at trying to be better podcast and email the show. TTBBpodcast at gmail.com. I'm so gun shy with that now. I just let Steve do it. It's
1: fine, man. Um, the trauma will heal itself. goes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know that that's how trauma works, but maybe we'll get into that with our guests. Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> all I want to say is, and this is me being totally self-centered, I just watched like four or five episodes of Ted Lasso with my wife. As if you don't you even, need
1: what you is need, that?
0: It's a TV show. Everybody right. needs to watch Ted, Ted Lasso. That's okay. all. That's okay. my only plug. Tonight's brought to you by um, Raspberry Bubbly. I think all the housekeeping is out of the way.
1: And grapefruit bubbly
0: okay all right we're getting lit tonight that's right james looks like he's got something in a highball glass looks like a lot of vodka or maybe it's just water we're not sure um but uh, (laughs) can we give a big trying to be better podcast welcome to james boudreau hi james hey thanks guys
1: thank you good
0: to be with you yeah so glad you're here man yeah very exciting um james so we got to we got to kind of hear about james a few episodes ago with andy ascetus james is the band leader and sort of um ring leader and and creative force behind the band bell helium and probably several other projects i'm getting the the vibe from but i can't wait to hear about some of that stuff so welcome james we're so glad you're able to do this dude Thanks. yeah i psyched to do it thank you so much
1: i was real excited just to get an email and then it was from you and uh <laughs> and it was just real nice and i really appreciate your uh openness to do this in the chat a little bit
2: sure hey I, I i think what you had said was uh i think you had said that you're like uh, yeah folks people have has anyone emailed us you know i can right. i can relate you know i can relate really re- releasing you know releasing something and you know being you know active putting something out there in the world and mm-hmm. you know it's busy out there so so you don't always get a lot of feedback so
0: yeah be be careful out there everybody if you email us you might just wind up on the podcast right right, right. that's how that works <laughs> yep um so I, I guess, I mean, you know, I don't know how we start this, James, but I guess I'm really curious, like, where are you from? Like, where did you originate from? Where did you grow up? Where, where, what were your formative years like?
2: I, um, I grew up in Long Island, and um, Ann and I were actually from the same small town. Um, oh, um, no kidding. Relatively small town, Port Washington and Long Island. Mm-hmm. And we went to high school uh, together. I think she was one year earlier. Then one year behind me um mm-hmm. in high school. And so yeah, I grew up there. I I um it was you know, it was a beautiful it is still a beautiful port town in Long Island on the north shore of the island. And um, you know, when I was a kid, I actually talked to, to Anne about this sometimes. Um she actually still lives there now. She's moved away a number of times and now she's yeah. living there again. And it's just this it's like a postcard town it's this beautiful Mm. town amazing main street and there's the docks and all the boats and everything else and when I was a kid I didn't really you know you just think you're growing up where you grow up and now of course you know now I'm like oh my god Port Washington's so so beautiful and of course there's no way I I could afford to live in Port Washington anymore. (laughs) (laughs) sure it is such a you know it's such a great town but so yeah so I grew up there and um started playing guitar when i was around uh, 12 or so my dad was a guitar player um when he was a teenager he was in a band called that i uh, called the emeralds so this mm-hmm. must have been like this was in the 60s in the sure. mid 60s when yeah the, when the thing was like the uh, surf bands yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh-huh. yeah yeah so he he had um he was he had been the rhythm guitar player i think he was very like um he actually never played anything for me because by the mm. time I was interested in it when I was 12 he hadn't touched the guitar in many years oh. and um but I still have his guitar it was a 1959 Supro um Valtral which is now actually a pretty like desirable guitar i think because of the black keys mainly ah uh,
0: okay mm. oh there you go Yep,
2: uh, I think I think Dan in, in, uh uses those guitars and um, anyway, so um, yeah, so we started playing there. Then I was kind of mostly self-taught and started to get really into music at that time, and it was classic rock, and this is the mid '80s, and okay. so there was a lot of um, AC/DC. Yeah, okay. You know, like um you know obviously like Led Zeppelin ACDC and also coming up at that time was like Def Leppard and um, this is all like MTV had just started and um so So is that
1: what you were listening to then
2: yeah yeah
1: all right those those guys that's and that's I mean I'm very similar in that regard
2: yeah one of my fa- my favorite at that time was probably quiet riot they had that song um you know that cover um come on feel the noise with yeah this played tune and um yeah that was one of the first records i ever bought was that quiet riot record um my first I- lp
1: was uh that i bought with my own money was pat benatar's crimes
0: of passion nice <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, that was a staple in the record stores at the time. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that's what you were trying to do, James. You were trying to be like big, like stadium rock, big rock and roll, classic rock. That's what you were. That's what you were hammering out in your bedroom.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Um, at the very beginning, I think one of the first songs that I learned was um, Judas Priest um, "Living After Midnight." Oh, which right. is kind of a funny, you know, song to like learn and play when you're, you know, 13 or 12 years old <laughs> right, or something like that. Right. <laughs> I had no idea really what they were even talking about. Right.
0: But, um, but it sounded mysterious <laughs> and scary and weird. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it was easy enough to play. Um, exactly. Well, that's the, that's the thing. Like when I picked up the guitar and I haven't really kept up with it, but it was, it was Nirvana. It was the, the power chords, you know, whatever, whatever punk or Nirvana or anything I could play. It was, as long as it was easy, I could figure it out. And that's what kind of opened the door. Yeah. 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 Um, uh,
2: you know, like it's, there was an easy-ish Led Zeppelin song, the Rover on physical graffiti. Love yep. it. It's like a pretty, you know, the opening riff in that song is like pretty easy. So I learned that. Then I learned that was an easy guitar solo. And, mm-hmm. um, And I just kind of really, um, I just really took to it. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Uh, And I was very sort of, um, I had been, I I was a pretty nerdy kid and guitar was like in a way something that I was immediately pretty good at. Mm. And I really kind of like really sort of dug into it and sort of got, you know, became like pretty proficient and started teaching lessons while I was in high school and, Mm. um yeah really really went in uh, in deep on it and was in you know a bunch of bands at that time and stuff and um yeah it was good so
0: in those in those high school bands i'm curious because i was kind of in and around high school bands were you the in the kind of bands that were writing their own stuff in the style of or were you playing mostly covers
2: We were uh, writing our own stuff. We, when probably when I was 15 or something like that, got into a band and we became, you know, pretty serious as serious as kids can be. But some of the guys Mm -hmm. in the band were older, a few years Mm -hmm. older, which at that time is like a really big difference. There was a guy who was like, you know, 20 years old in the band and I was something like that. That's like
1: seasoned veteran.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) The grizzled veteran uh, and the 20 year old. Yeah. Yeah
2: yeah and and we were serious i mean we we wrote a bunch of you know we were i don't know 40 50 songs over a few years and Mm. went into the studio and demoed them and um you know i don't know how many tunes we we demoed but it it was a lot i still have them on cassette you know probably 20 20 songs that we that we did and we were good for a a band of you know kids yeah um so what
1: became what became of those demos
2: you know, nothing. I think I put a f- couple of them up on my SoundCloud or something. They um, we, we eventually I mean, we 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 had some contacts from like, I think the uh, in the in family members of the band, like knew a lawyer who represented this band and that band. And we had sure. some meetings and we uh-huh. played some we played some, um, you know, all the clubs in New York City, you know, before I, I mean, I. I was like 17 when I started playing the clubs in New York City and Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and um, we opened up for some notable bands at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know nothing really came of it. We eventually switched lineups, and th- there was one demo that we made. That actually um, had some legs for a minute, hmm. but it fell it, as these things often do. It fell apart at the last minute. That that stuff was with a um, a singer from South Carolina named um, Danielle Howell, who is um, who has had like a nice kind of indie career. Uh, I hmm. we haven't been in touch in a while, but she's a brilliant singer songwriter, and um, I met her when I was down in South Carolina for a summer, well, for part of a summer um, playing down there. And when I was, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, something like that. And um, she came up to New York and we wrote some songs together, made a demo and it started to get shopped around and things were looking good. And then sort of like internally the, the, the thing fell apart. Mm. And, Mm. uh, and that's when I decided to take a, I, I had also started getting into jazz at that time. I had a teacher who was a really accomplished jazz guitarist. And um, when that fell apart at the ripe old age of whatever I was, 20 years old, maybe by that point, I felt like it was time for a change. And I went to school uh, to be an English major.
0: Ah, there oh, you go. Okay. Very good. Perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like, from your dad's music career prior to that, was that, I mean, were, were, were family members really supportive of you going for it like that?
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My dad used to come to all of the shows um, that we did at all the local bars. And even in the city, he would travel, you know, to come and see us and stuff. He Mm. was, he was, yeah, he was very supportive and uh, they were, they were real proud of what we were accomplishing. Um, How far from
1: uh, port washington would you what it would like manhattan be
2: it's about a 45 minute train ride and okay. you know maybe maybe an hour by car
1: so did you like schlep all your gear in
2: like how did that yeah. work <laughs> oh yeah like half stack amps and what, did drum you put it that, on the
1: train or did you have a station wagon or something how'd that <laughs> work out
2: it was just cars. It was just like, you know, not, not even super big, you know, cars, but we would just pack a couple of them up and we would drive in. We played at, you know, we would, we would play anywhere in the city. We played a couple of times at CBGBs. Oh, no kidding. um, Which was like really kind of a mismatch for like what our style of music was at the time. I remember being, you know, 18, 17 years old and pulling up outside CBGBs on a matinee uh, on a weekend. And like, you know, it was, it was, it was a punk scene, sure. and oh, yeah. it, like you know, fights on the sidewalk, and like mm. we were trying to, we were bringing our like with our with our long hair and um, half stack pants <laughs> like going into right. The
1: stuff. the um, Marshall stacks not so much a punk thing, is it? No, no, <laughs> no. not very punk. Uh huh. Mm. But you'll have to forgive me because I'm trying real hard to contain my fanboyism. <laughs> Plus, I have, I just have a. Like I've been to New York, but only like as a tourist, and I saw the Dead at Madison Square Garden once, you know, in and out real. But I have a, you know, I have a romanticized version of that city, and also kind of a not so romanticized version of that of the city. But having done a little bit of schlepping gear in and out of clubs and that sort of thing over the years, I can't imagine dealing with that in New York. Mm-hmm. Like driving into the city finding a place to park. Hopefully there'll be a place by the club. Maybe you got to go up an elevator. You got to go through some alley. God <laughs> knows what you're stepping over in, you know, and like, is my stuff going to get stolen? Like all of that. So I'm I, my, you know, for those about to rock, like I'm totally saluting you <laughs> for, for just yeah. dealing with that.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, really, I really, I really look back on that and feel like it was a, definitely a young man's <laughs> a young man's game you know what I was doing
1: at that time sure that's um, that's wow. kind of funny
0: is it do and, you say you know, do, you,
1: do you say that because of an energy factor or because of like a like a a tunnel vision like we're just getting mm. those stuff into the gig and you're not really thinking about all this other stuff like just mm-hmm. adrenaline I and
2: I think adrenaline energy f- you know fearlessness right um, mm-hmm. um yeah just just being like that young and you sort of aren't as afraid
0: yeah, you right. Like, yeah. You don't really think about what it is you're actually doing. You're just doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> like, yeah. The, like you, you, you. We get older and we start thinking. Well, uh, you, you kind of know what it costs. You know what is at stake, maybe. And when you're young, you don't give a shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like full throttle, just doing it. Full yeah, full throttle, dead ahead. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and when you're younger too, I mean, I think that there was always, especially at this time, maybe culturally in the music scene at that time, it would, the idea was that you you paid your dues and you got to a point where you would make it. And so mm. and making it at that <laughs> time was, right. was that you had to have the right person see you and then you would be signed. Yeah, yeah, yeah And yeah, you'd be yeah. like sort of transported from that world into a better world a, a better level. Yeah. yeah. Where you where
1: you had somebody to schlep the gear for you.
0: Yeah, right. right. Yeah. But, exactly. you know, I mean, being in little bands in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, that's not going to happen. But, like, you're schlepping stuff around New York City. You're going to CBGB. You're going to clubs where there are people that could see you. But it's like, I would, I would equate it to my time in, in L.A. It's like, it's so close, but it's so far away because you have to be yeah you have to almost conjure magic all all of a sudden and some people it happens and some people it doesn't happen like, like yeah. but I could imagine that the electricity of that possibility in that city was a little more palpable than Columbus Nebraska perhaps
2: Yeah it's interesting to to hear about you know I can romanticize the idea of being in a small town and what being in a in a, in a scene like that would feel like as a yeah. as a young band seems kind of cool to me um, yeah. because you know the thing was for in my experience of this, um, there really wasn't much of a scene. It was very competitive. We met other bands mm-hmm. We were doing this, but it and we got we were friendly with a few of them, but it wasn't. It, it was really competitive. It was almost like um, what you would think of as like uh, you know, cutthroat business, but it's yeah, just that's really interesting. long hair and 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 big amps. yeah,
1: We're Lincoln, Nebraska, the city where we're coming from, actually has a pretty vibrant uh, music scene. In fact, we're coming up on. Did it just happen? Lincoln calling.
0: Yeah, it was just last weekend.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's like what, sixty bands?
0: Yeah, just and insane. And everybody yeah. goes to see each other's stuff yeah, and yeah, yeah. supports each other. And the, the the artists that you don't think are gonna support the other kind of way off the map artists do. Yeah, like it's it's a good scene. And I just I heard an interview with Joey Ramone talking about the the cutthroat nature of of new york that that they would do you they would do anything to sabotage the other band like it was it was like you know brutal yeah yeah Hmm. yeah
2: and in in retrospect i i i feel like i'm i'm pretty glad that we we had some you know we had some showcase shows where mm -hmm. some you know record company people showed up and I'm glad in retrospect that, that nothing happened, you know, that we didn't have much success at that time because, you know, as, as the rest of my life sort of panned out, it probably wouldn't have been great to have had too much success. Mm. um, I'd like to have a little more success now in (laughs) in later later years, but it's probably for the best that that did. Yeah. Right.
1: Maybe this is a a question best answered later, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um, So Along the lines of what you just said, like I, 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 you said you went to and got your, went to go to school to get an English major, but have you been what I will call a working musician for like how long? Like did you get your now? Yeah. Well, I mean, did you get your English degree and then like do something with that and then go back to like, are you a full time musician? No, what does that look like?
2: I have, I have not been a full time musician, but for a very small, period of time in the, um, early two thousands. Okay. Um, other than that, I've always had, I've always had jobs.
1: Sure. Okay. Uh,
2: and, um, you know, always did music as a side passion thing. Sure. And over the years, you know, have like sort of made different, the, the The one time that I was doing it as my job, was when i was in a i was with a band called the billy Mayer show and i guess this is in the late 90s into the early 2000s mm-hmm. and um that band was a san francisco band that was pretty popular like a kind of um they called it like a sort of punk cabaret band that's it, it interesting really describe it quite it was like uh, it definitely like it was art art rock okay the singer and, you know, sort of primary creative force is a sort of he's still an amazing creative force. His name is uh, Corey Maccabee, And he is like maybe maybe you would say like a Tom Waits. Oh, OK. Sort okay. Of, but a little bit more David Lynch, like um, so a good combination. A very dramatic songs about weird subjects.
1: Will you say the name of the group again?
2: Billy Nair billionaire
0: okay the billionaire show
2: all right and at that time when i was with the group they had um they had always been making films also on the side and they actually got to a point where they got investment uh, investors to make a feature film it was called the american astronaut and uh i was the i think my title was like assistant musical director or something like that Mm -hmm. and um So basically, for I don't remember how long it was exactly six months to a year uh, my job was to work on um, the music on that film.
0: Oh, wow. Um, And so you did you, you wrote a lot of the music for it, you performed it, or both?
2: Yeah, I I wrote, co wrote the soundtrack, and then we uh, performed it. And it was, you have a couple of little bit parts in the movie. Oh, cool! I, I cool. play a guitar player on a uh, in a bar band on an asteroid.
0: Oh, perfect, perfect. <laughs> great! That's the dream gig, really. <laughs> that's what we're all aiming for, right? right? I just want to play on an asteroid, asteroid sometime. So, so was it college? Did it did that sort of change your vibe? Like you got kind of out of rock and roll and into more yeah, into different stuff? Like did that kind of blow you? Did some things happen there? Did you play any music in college at all? And that sort of yeah. evolved you a little bit.
2: Yeah, in college, I, I got um, I really started to get into jazz and I started to study it and try to play it and I had some groups and we would play it. I went to school in um, in Binghamton, New York. It's mm-hmm. one of the state schools here, and um, I uh, you know I did gigs as a as a guitar player and a jazz you know jazz quartet and um, mm-hmm. some, like duo stuff, and you know and after that. After four years there, I got my degree. I was playing jazz on the side. I just I went to um, I decided I wanted to make a little more of a real go at, you know, playing music for a living and came to New York City uh, to the new school, which had a really good and they still do, have a really good jazz program there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Isn't that Joel? Isn't that the school that Bob Carey was like the president? Yeah, he of was the
0: president of for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. One of
1: our former state governors here in Nebraska, Bob Carey was yeah, yeah. Uh, he, i think he was the, the president of the new school for a while for a while
0: yeah sorry, I really, that's,
2: i've,
0: I've sorry. kind of always had my eye on the new school because of the acting the Actors studio there you know i've kind of always looked at that and you know held that in regard as a really cool you know wild um not not too unlike my grad school cal arts where i sure. met ann you know mm-hmm. it's like this kind of wild place where um they let their students kind of go off the deep end instead of trying to inundate them with anything, you know, so that's cool that you were able to, so you, so you, you started, you studied there then.
2: I did. Yeah. I studied there for a year. Um, they, I got like a partial scholarship to go. And so I went for a year and, but after a year I would have, I would have stayed and continued, but I couldn't afford it. Yeah. No, you know, it was expensive and there was no, um, yeah, no way, no way that was going to happen. And so at that point, um, that's when I started, you know, getting jobs, whatever mm-hmm. kind of job I could get. I got jobs as, you know, working in um um like in being an administrative assistant. I got jobs working as a project manager, you know, mm-hmm. eventually I kind of ended up in doing marketing, um, and always doing music on the side um mm-hmm. since then, except right. for that a good stint in the in the early two thousands, like I was
0: saying with the billionaire show. Did you did you move out to the Bay Area for that project, or were you just already out there? So there was, San Francisco band, right? Yeah, there
2: were a San Francisco band that was sort of becoming a New York band. The drummer was—I actually met him at the New School. Um, oh, okay. He was in one of my one of my ensemble classes, and we kind of hit it off. And it turned out he was doing this this totally non-jazz, amazingly creative music on the side. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we hit it off. That's awesome. What, is, what we,
1: does, does non jazz encompass? That's, to me, that's kind of like anti like pasta. It's like not pasta, like not jazz.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess just in the context of like the new school and like in a, you know, everything was jazz. It was like you're in the jazz ensemble and you're, everybody wanted to be like, you know, as authentically jazz as possible, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like really in the idiom you know, really like, um, you know, authentically playing that music, which is a challenge. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And that, that seems like a, that seems like a tough thing to nail down. Is there like, what criteria would you say would be authentic <laughs> jazz? Do you have to have like, a?
0: it has what, to sound what, like Dave Brubeck.
1: Yeah. Or like, does it, <laughs> is it like bitches brew? Or are we talking yes.
2: bebop or like, what's the. Yeah, I guess it was really bebop was sort of the the language, okay. of the standard at that at the school. Okay. Um, certainly at the time. So this is late 1990s. I think that, um, yeah. So everybody was trying to be authentically like a real bebop. Okay. Player. Sure. And um, and so Bobby, who was the drummer, who um, turned out he was doing this other thing, which was like almost like the way that I discovered it was like it was almost like this secret. He had this secret. Mm
0: project on the side that was was, not he was cheating on jazz he was cheating on jazz (laughs) (laughs) he had a mistress away from jazz stepping out on jazz exactly he probably didn't see it that way but that's the way that's the way that i saw it i was like oh wow
2: okay Yeah.
0: yeah that's cool so what were what were your influences then? Like I know the last the last artists you mentioned were Def Leppard and um, ACDC. <laughs> yeah. um, what what so, what started to blow your mind in the music world, or was it kind of your own, or was it like the people around you? Yeah, was like, there
1: like was there a record that yeah. made you say, "Oh wait," or was it just a,
2: being in the scene and being immersed in a kind of right. a
1: academic shift?
2: I think the first thing was when a, a few years earlier, when I was maybe still in high school, I got a, a, a dream job working at Record World. Oh, sure. You know, nice. I, I always wanted to work at record stores and then I did, you know, for a while work there. I worked at Tower Records for a long time and they had in the uh, in the back room, which was classical and jazz. They had I think it was a cassette of um they had two miles davis cassettes back there one of them was kind of blue and the other one was around about midnight Mm. and i remember the first time i remember really being affected by it was we were closing and so it was all dark and there were no customers in the place and um on the on so what i think it's so what the first track the, the the system in the in the store was great and that was one of my favorite that was my favorite thing about working at record stores because they always had these great ceiling systems yeah um, and the sound of that walking bass line on that tune just kind of blew my mind mm. was- i just was- got
1: i just got chills up and down my spine because i had <laughs> like the first time i heard that it wasn't in a record store through great stereo system but it was through a decent stereo system and i was in a state of mind where I was, you know, receptive. Mm-hmm. And and it was just I and a friend of mine looked at me at the first little horn pop and went, so what? And that was it. I was done. <laughs> right? right. And the rest yeah. is history. You yeah, know, right. Yeah. It was one of those moments. So anyway, yeah. I sorry to interrupt, but that's I, I relate to that moment a lot actually. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's funny in a way, when you think about jazz, you would think about like, a you know, a a trumpet solo or saxophone solo or something. But the thing that hit me as a rock listener at that time was that was that baseline. And also that mm -hmm. you could have just a baseline be the prominent feature of the music, Mm -hmm. uh, which just seems so, you know, so outrageous, like so.
1: Well, I immediately just I, I now have John Paul Jones playing dazed and confused in my head.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, that's actually yeah. a good precedent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess I mean yeah. sort of relegated to the rhythm, relegated yeah. to the low end, and to keep things keep keep a foundation. I, I'm not a musician per se, but you know, to keep things to have a foundation and stuff, and then to pop that out like that. That's yeah. uh, that's fascinating.
1: So yeah. was my was that like your your jumping in point? to j- the world of jazz miles and that record and
2: yeah it was it was it was that record and then i had a teacher um named uh, Larry Meyer on Long Island who was a pupil of a of a jazz piano uh teacher named Lenny Tristano who was like a big guy in the 40s and 50s and hmm. 60s he was on atlantic records he was a brilliant genius piano player and larry um, would i I wanted to learn how to play jazz at first because i wanted to become a better rock player i just wanted to find out the tricks of being of of jazz and then
0: sort of apply that to rock and then you know that's legit
1: like that's a well i I
0: mean i mean i know it's a huge step in time but i hear that in bell you know what i mean i hear Mm. i hear that that uh cross-pollination a little bit so that's cool to to know that 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 intention was set a while ago and it's maybe carried you through would you say is that kind of that you chasing that question has sort of been a, a constant for you you know i i appreciate you saying that because i, I guess maybe in a way yeah
2: i i, I guess so I, I for a while i tried to be a jazz guitar player because I really did get deep into the music and I got heavily into guitar players like um, Grant Green was my favorite, Mm -hmm. uh, all of his Blue Note records. And I got really into some horn players like uh, Joe Henderson is probably my favorite and Sonny Rollins. And a lot of, I I got really, really um, deep into it. And for a while, I was really trying to, I wanted to play that music. And I, 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 I never really got... It, it never really took entirely in me. I never felt that I got to that point where I was legitimately playing in that style.
0: Mm.
2: And, you know, in retrospect now, I can see that, um, you know, this, all, this rock music that I grew up in and still also love, um, you know, is just, it's sort of my roots and it's also, um, so I, I guess, yeah, trying to sort of bring the two things together is mm. what I've tried to do. Um, mm. For a while, there there was some time um, in the 2000s where I was really doing more experimental music and sort of took a turn towards not wanting to play anything. I wanted to play only stuff that would not be expected. Mm. Um, and I did, um, and I was really trying to find, I kind of went through some, um, after I left the Billy Nayer show, I went through a period where I was, wanted to sort of reignite my love of playing the guitar. I felt like I had gotten a little too sort of um, cavalier about it and a little professionalized baby. And so I went through a period where I decided to, you know, what would I play if I didn't play any songs that I knew or, and I didn't play any scales or chords that I knew. Hmm. What if I just picked up the guitar and I was like just born and just had this thing and what would, what would happen? And so I did, I started working on that. Wow. Um, And I ended up, I I was working on it just to work on it. And I was recording it to listen back and determine if I was coming up with anything or getting anywhere. And eventually I, I really liked what was coming up and I tried to then sort of incorporate those improvisations into some compositions Mm. and it was losing all of the magic of it. And Mm. so what I ended up doing was releasing my, my first solo album um, was actually those recordings. And that,
1: that album, that recording is listed on the flyer. that came in the bill helium record, I believe.
2: Yeah. That's the um, Java street bagatelles uh, record. And I made a lot. Actually, made a bunch of that record while I was living with Anne in uh, Greenpoint.
0: Um, she, so I, had... I just think that that's fascinating, James. That you were like feeling like maybe you were getting a little too almost like. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like I'm getting a little too good, or maybe I'm too comfortable, or I'm too. I I I know where I'm headed with the things I'm interested in with this particular instrument. I am gonna blow it up i'm gonna blow it up i'm gonna clear clean the slate and try to see what else is there and try to like what would i if i didn't know anything what would i do and not like relearn but like i don't know like fall it's like falling in love again or something like fall like re (laughs) like redoing your vows or something like let's what is this now because we've i've been in this relationship with music or the guitar what else is there i think that that's profound um, and it's cool that, you know, things came up from that.
2: Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I really, I think I, I really felt like I was um, I'd gotten to a point where I really wasn't enjoying playing the guitar. Mm. Particularly. I was just kind of um, doing. Yeah. I had just gotten into like a kind of a negative mind space uh, with it. And um, there were some changes going on in my life at that time. I was around, 29 30 years old mm-hmm. and i had been through um you know living it up a little too much um mm-hmm. and kind of you know i i call it that you know it, it wasn't living it up there was nothing sort of glamorous about my lifestyle but i was Can't just relate. living too hard and <laughs> right. yeah. um, not kind of really getting anywhere and i felt like the guitar playing for me had become like something I sort of took for granted and there was no magic in it anymore for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just sort of had gotten cynical and, um, and I I really wanted to um, have a more sort of spiritual experience with it and, you know, find out what does it mean to me to, you know, what do I, what do I want to play? Like, okay, so I'm I'm tired of, everything was a calculation, you know, I was sort of like, I'm coming up with this idea. What can I use it for? Can it Mm. slot into this kind of idea Or can I play with a band like with that And I got really kind of I wanted to Sort of like you said like
0: blow it up Sounds like yeah it sounds like you were It sounds like a trap that I Can get into with anything but Anything creatively is when I'm When I'm trying to predict the results And then you have to kind of figure out Your way to try to anticipate results That you have no control over so it's Like it just feels empty Feels like a hungry ghost that's never Getting fed you know, that's, yeah. Did, did you Do you think that as a result of that kind of breaking it apart that you did find a spirit, like you said, you, you wanted to find a spiritual connection to it. Do you think you did? I, I think I did, yeah. And it it, um, it led me,
2: I, I ended up doing three albums like that. Wow. Um, I did one, the first one was in, in 2006 and that was Java Street Bagatelles. And that was really those super lo-fi recordings. I mean, if I look back on it now, I actually listened to that record, is that CD, uh, for the first time in, in years, um, fairly recently, and I was, on the one hand, really kind of, um, I was impressed with, like, how bold it was to have released it at all, because yeah. it's, I mean, I recorded it on um, a lot of it was recorded on, you know, those like old Panasonic or whatever the brand was like cassette decks that are just like these
0: rectangular black things. And yeah, uh, oh, yeah. Got one, I got one
1: sitting in the I next room. I thought you room. were
0: going to say like a four track, but right. this is even more lo-fi than that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was just a $20 cassette deck
2: um, <laughs> on like the cheapest like tapes you can get because I, I really wasn't initially, you know, planning to do anything that anybody else was going to hear it yeah um i th- yeah I thought I would maybe like learn stuff from it and and but anyway so uh so I, I have a sense that it was um i i feel good about that record although I also sort of feel a little bit like it's kind of hard to listen to so I'm kind of amazed that it it's it's actually in terms of like press and in terms of uh yeah I guess press or attention it's it's been the most
0: um
2: it was the most successful thing I've done hmm. which is hmm. I don't know if it was beginner's luck, like in in 2006. Like I got one of the tracks on NPR. Mm-hmm. I got um, a bunch of good reviews. Mm. Um, ended up playing um, uh, a festival in in Portland, Maine, that I was invited to because of that record. Nice. Um, so and then I did uh, the the follow up in 2008 was called Fresh Twigs, and it was really the same. It was the same idea, but what I what I started doing was um, I started using a computer to record, um, mm-hmm. and I started layering um, things. So whereas the first record was all pretty much as it happened, just snippets from these tapes. Yeah. The second one, I started to put things together and use editing in a creative way, and it was it was less lo-fi, was still a little lo-fi, but less. Sure. lo-fi. And it started to get a little closer to um rock there's a couple of things on that on the second album that are riff you know like riff based and um so i was starting to move back in that direction and then by the third one which was 2011 uh album called astral law um that was even more intricately layered and almost like soundtrack type of really forensic digital editing of pieces together to make compositions. And um and I didn't realize what I was doing at the time, but I made those three records. And then that was sort of the end of that type of music making for me. Mm -hmm. Um just because I ended up I started, you know, moving on to some different things.
0: So it it wasn't that you you lost the magic. It was just like you felt like you'd kind of completed that era.
2: I think maybe, yeah, you know, a buddy of mine, um, Philip Lynch, a good friend of mine who's a brilliant singer-songwriter that um, I think people don't understand, like, how amazing his songwriting is. Um, Anyway, so he's a buddy of mine. He's not, like, an ambitious guy in terms of, like, putting himself out there, but I really felt like his work was like I wanted to make a record of his stuff. Hmm. And so what we ended up doing was um, when I finished my third record, I sort of started producing his record and it took us a long time. It took us years Hmm. to get it done because we were doing it on weekends and some weeknights and um, his music is very intricate and sort of, it was it was uh, a labor of love, and it was um, and it started to turn my attention. I think even more back towards my rock background mm. and my mm. love of that. And um, so we released that one in 2014. His record is called "At the Start, at Long Last," mm. and I, I wish more people knew about it because I really do feel like I feel like it's one of those records that later on people will say. Like, oh yeah, this, there was this amazing record is so obscure, like nobody, you know, we all hope that we're involved in projects like that, right? right. I mean, that's sort of, but I, I do feel like, I, I do feel like that's a good candidate for that, mm-hmm. for that kind of thing to happen, his record. Um, yeah, so I did that and that kind of, I think, sort of like, um, was like a palate cleanser for me or something. Mm-hmm. And by the time that was wrapped up, in, uh, around 2014, 2015, I had gotten seriously back into the Grateful Dead. <laughs> um, seriously, well, you, you poor I bastard. Mean, <laughs> I mean, like I've got, you know, I mean, I've got the spreadsheets of the, you know, I've got like, um, databases of all mm. of the, what, you know,
1: what precipitated that?
2: Yeah. Right. I honestly don't know what it was when I was a bit younger. I I, I, did never, I never saw them live because when I was a kid, I was into, you know, in the 80s or in the early 90s when I would have had a chance to mm-hmm. see them, I was not into The Grateful Dead. I right. didn't really, really mm-hmm. know about them. And I was into
0: like music that was totally like not
2: yeah, <laughs> lining yeah, yeah.
0: up with yeah. The Grateful Dead. Yeah, I have a similar story, so I get it. Yeah, you, uh, a
1: quick plug for something related. I don't know if you're familiar with the good old Grateful Dead cast. It's mm. a lot. They, it's a Grateful Dead Inc. production, but this last episode of it is fantastic, and it gets into um, all this incredibly diverse list of musicians and their uh, paths. To and within that community mm-hmm. and in particular joe russo who also hails you know from new york said that when he was of that age you know he said that where he was at you, you were either a deadhead or you were into hard rock mm-hmm. and he made the decision that the grateful dead could go fuck themselves and he was into <laughs> hard rock you know what i'm saying yeah. and so and then years and years and years later, here he is playing with Bob Weir and Phil Lesh and Jay Rad yeah, and right. all that. So yeah. anyway, just it's 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 just a really delightful hour and a half of listening to that particular podcast. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. It's great. Yeah. Anyway, I digress.
2: You got into the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Wh- how? How? Um, why? <laughs> yeah. I, around around the time that I was sort of trying to get back to loving playing guitar, I, I had a friend who um, turned me on to... Um, dick's picks 16 mm.
0: Mm.
2: which is like um what is it it's on the shelf
0: over here yeah i'm curious 16
2: now is um, it's november 8th 1969 at the fillmore
1: oh yeah yeah, yeah. uh-huh
2: and it's just a monstrous it's so my, it, my entry into it was was this because it's it's just this monstrous it, acid rock it's in incendiary oh my god it's quite totally
0: hot yeah <laughs>
2: and so i've sort of i started to get into them then and i don't know what happened around 2015 or so but i just i just caught got, you know i just caught it and i went in real deep and i you know so <clears throat>
1: isn't that funny though because i think that's a i don't know if it's common thread but it's along my thread because like the the hard rock thing like the ACDC and the the Judas Priest and all that and then the jazz mm. I mean that those two kind of worlds the Grateful Dead is all in there yeah it's all in there and then you throw in the bluegrass and the folk and the the avant garde and the noise and mm-hmm. and it all just kind of rolls into one Blues. and there's Jerry Garcia standing <laughs> there going I don't know man <laughs> <laughs> <You>
2: know? <laughs> I, don't ask yeah.
1: me you know
2: yeah, it's just a, a meeting of all of these amazing, all of the best threads of like American culture. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know,
2: are, are like woven in there, and, and and in addition to that, it's it's um, you know the thing that's at the heart of the Grateful Dead, which I did not certainly didn't know when I was a kid. And I guess I wouldn't have been interested in it when I was a kid, but it's it's really the spiritual connection and the sort of transcendence that can happen when you have a group of people playing without ego for sort of towards a common goal, which is really in in a way it's like to get high. It's to get like as high as possible Mm -hmm. on, you know, on the sound and on the interaction. And then to also have the audience feedback into that. So it's almost like this, this chemistry experiment
1: and, um, it absolutely is Yeah, yeah. yeah. just, and- just this morning, I was having a conversation with a coworker and I work in a little town in Nebraska and this guy's uh, the main, one of the maintenance guys in my facility and he lives in Syracuse and I had, we just started talking turns out he used to go to like one of his brother-in-law or something would take him to Lollapalooza in Chicago for like mm-hmm. five years running. So like he's seen some shit. <clears throat> Right, <laughs> that I never would have expected. I would expect him to be like Garth Brooks, Luke Bryant, Georgia Country Lion, whatever <laughs> you know. And so, we're standing there having this conversation, and I, my mind's being blown again with my own, I guess, pers- you know, my preconception of what this guy was into. You know, right turns out he's really kind he, so. I do start talking about the dead a little bit. He's like, Well, what kind of what do you like? And I found myself saying to him that Grateful Dead concerts weren't rock concerts so much as they were uh just experiments. Experiment. We just showed up for the experiment. And he's like, oh yeah, okay. Like they never played. Like he was very receptive to that idea. Yeah. And and again, I had to check myself like, dude, you totally prejudged this guy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, that he wouldn't nice.
1: get it or been and he was like, oh yeah, I can totally see why you would go see that so many times <laughs> or whatever, you know. Yeah. But and yeah. I did not when I was going to shows actively, I did not appreciate that element of it. Mm, mm. it's way later that i that i like i literally kind of had that moment this very morning having this Mm. conversation finding myself saying it wasn't it was really just an experiment it's an Mm. ongoing experiment even when i was seeing them in the 90s they didn't know what was going to happen the sound system was continually in flux it was it was i mean it gotten a little formulaic just due to necessity but there was the x
2: factor could still happen on any given Mm. night Mm. and it was amazing Mm. yeah and and sometimes it and sometimes it wouldn't happen and like that was part of the part of it you know it's like you can't manufacture you know what i mean like and and i think the thing one thing about the grateful dead to me is that in my experience of being on the outskirts of the jazz scene and i know a lot of jazz musicians and i really love and appreciate jazz i go see a lot of a lot of jazz concerts is that there's a certain sort of like um like you show up you're at such a, an elevated level as a musician at all times anyway that you like show up and you just almost like turn it on like you mm-hmm. just like sort of flip mm-hmm. the switch and you get to that place that sort of ecstatic place or whatever in the in the 40 or 50 minutes set and and in so that's sort of that so this is my formulation of it so th- so there's that in jazz which is sort of almost like I- i'm going to use this word and i kind of feel bad about it but like <laughs> professionalized it's yes. almost like it's uh, it's almost like it's so hyper perfected mm-hmm. and that it just sort of there's almost something that's like a little it's it's awesome to watch that but it's not mystical mm. um and in rock wow. and in some rock bands um, you can get to a kind of mystical kind of thing, but that would often happen like with sheer power and volume. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Like
2: if you think yeah. of like, you know, like Led Zeppelin. And
0: fireworks.
2: And fireworks. Yeah, <laughs> really kind of like.
0: Sparks. Yeah,
2: Creating it, right? Creating <laughs> it. The pyro goes off and then this right. and that. And, or like, or total debauchery. Like, yes. we're going right. to be so sleazy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, sleazy that it's going to be like there's going to be this queasiness watching the band because you don't know what's going to happen. It could all fall apart yeah. in the Grateful Dead. It wasn't about any of that stuff. In fact, they had a lot of shitty gigs. Right. And they made, I mean, you can't find even the top Grateful Dead shows that were ever played have bum notes and they're, totally. and they're like and yep. bad notes like in the worst spots they like,
1: never yeah. <laughs> played they never played a perfect concert ever
2: I Never played a perfect concert nope. and like and so by the measure of the world or at least the world that i was sort of coming from mm-hmm. it was sort of like well it, it's a total failure right that mm, yeah. is a total yes.
0: failure yeah and, and On every really level yeah a beautiful and, failure like, like yeah. jerry
1: garcia is not the greatest guitar was not the greatest guitar player in the world the drummers, they didn't play jazz. Kind of, maybe, sort of. It was like me trying to play jazz. Like I can fake it,
0: you know. Yeah. Phil Lesh was the real. I mean, he was the he was the real sort of nuts and bolts musician. Real, you know yeah. what I mean? Like he was. Like uh, he, was like with, those he was the only one He was the only one that was actually like classically trained. Yeah, yeah. Mickey
1: Hart played in the army, so he had some chops. Sure. Jerry Garcia was a scholar. And yeah. Bob Weir was this spaced out weirdo kid. <laughs> his, primary, his primary credentials was just being pathologically anti-authoritarian.
2: Yeah. Like right. you're in. You know? Yeah. Right. Maybe practice a little bit, Bobby. <laughs> yeah. But but when you put it together and you have this commitment, you know, it's a commitment to the group, and it's the commitment to the group in the moment, and you're working towards something together, it's astonishing what can happen because yeah. the thing is that. The Grateful Dead, though, by the measure of like academic jazz or by like, you know, whatever, like perfect like rock, you yeah. know, bands or whatever, are, are can be awful. They're awful. No, yeah. no one, no one can, but no one else gets to that
0: place that they get to. Yeah. yeah. And, and, right. the and they often they right did that is, just is by like, like, st-
1: like stumbling and bumbling into it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right.
2: So I, I found that just. You know, incredibly inspiring. And so that I think drove me to like really dig into because I then I wanted to find all of the
0: examples of those transcendent moments. Mm, that's so, searching
1: for the sound.
0: Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> so is that, that was a journey that you went on with the dead post your experimental solo projects. Is that right? And then so that kind of yeah. opened you up into that. So how did, how did your, um, how did your entrance to the bus, so to speak, inform more music then? Did that turn around and kind of shape things for you? Yeah. I, I just, after we did Phillip's record and I was, I just decided that I didn't, I,
2: you know, getting older, like I don't know what I'm going to try to accomplish. I really just decided I just want to play. Mm. I just want I hadn't been playing live a heck of a lot. And I was like, I just want to play. And what do I want to play? I want to play with a group of musicians have loose set lists based on Grateful Dead and similar music. And I want to be able to go and improvise and mm. see if we can get, if I can get some of that, you know, philosophy, take that mm. philosophy and see what I can get out of it. Sure, mm. man. So I, I did that for a few years and that's when, Anne, the, the, it was just the James Boudreau band because I right. figured, well, I didn't really know what to call it. It was just an experiment and, sure the Jerry Garcia band let's just not be precious about it yeah so I just called it that and and Ann joined after a while and it was like this rotating cast of musicians yeah and there was some there were some really nice moments and it felt great at times but it was trying to like create that kind of dynamic in the workaday world of mm. New York City like you get like 40 minutes on stage yep. you you hump your shit up onto the stage and you plug everything in and maybe you haven't rehearsed and the bass player couldn't make it because he got a playing gig and so you've got somebody that's never heard stuff before and the reality of it was that after a few years I think it was two or three years of doing monthly gigs in this mindset it, it started to get really exhausting mm. because um the there was no audience catching on um there was no there was no like real momentum building and there were some great peak moments but there were a lot of there were some gigs that were you know the players didn't line up and it was kind of so i just started to feel like i i still want to play and i still want to i still want to do this but i it needs i need to refine it like we need to we, you know, people aren't coming just because there's this band in Harlem playing, um, you know, help slip Franklin's, <laughs> or, you know, crazy fingers are doing like a grateful dead set. Like they're just, they're just not coming. So, mm. um, and without the audience feeding back into it, it also just starts to feel kind Very of like difficult. Um, yeah. Um, and so I just thought, I thought, you know, w- if we have original material Um, and can consolidate a group and make a record that it just, it just felt like the next step. Mm. And so that's what, that's what I did. I took the people that had been in and out of my band that seemed to match up well together, like personality wise Mm. and musically and asked them if they would be willing to participate in this. And so Mm. the folks that did the Bell Helium uh, record you know agreed to do it and um yeah and that's where we and and, and then the
0: pandemic and right here we are <laughs> so I, I mean, I, mean I, I think it's really fascinating though that 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 exploration into dead music in some way opened up this idea that you know you, you chasing that matt those magic moments and finding the same lifts and valleys um allowed you to kind of say well i want to try this but with original work you know like um i I think it shows up in the record it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful piece it's really it's really great and you know truth be told Ann's on the record so i'm like yeah i'm gonna buy the yeah i'll buy the record sure you know like yeah i'll buy your record Ann. and then i listen to it i'm like holy shit (laughs) (laughs) this is it's very good and um yeah. I'll, I'll chime in on that yeah, please <laughs>
1: uh, i mean i'm holding it right here just uh, for i feel like david letterman for the folks at home this is <laughs> right. the record you know I, we're audio only but yeah and it's really funny like hearing what we've been talking about makes a lot of sense because there's a thing about this record that you made that is simultaneously very comfortable mm-hmm. but also very fresh Mhm. There's elements that I'm like, oh yeah, it's really this really delightful line of like this, like I've I've kind of, I've kind of heard this before, but not this way, mm. and so all of your influence is like, well, of course it feels that way, yeah, right, yeah, and, and there's a couple moments, the last two tracks, I like, I enjoy the whole record, and in particular, I like your guitar tone and I like the production of it. It yeah. has a, a an energy to it that doesn't often happen in you know studio records mm-hmm. i don't know if you guys recorded it mostly live in the studio mm-hmm. yeah that comes across but uh yeah. the last two tracks are just transcendent dude, dude. it's all enjoyable <laughs> but i had i literally i was just kind of folding laundry and i flipped over to the b side and i was just sitting there listening to it and then i was kind of laying down on my couch which i don't get to do very often so <laughs> um I, I relish those moments but um the uh that uh forever ago so is it plover is that how you say that plover yeah yeah. that -hmm. track got my attention anytime you and i said this i can't remember if i said it directly to annivers later but anytime there's like a kind of a danceable beat and a and a fender roads playing slightly outside like i'm in i'm hooked like that is right up. i'm like a dog with the scratching (laughs) in the leg like that, keep hitting that spot you know um i just love that yeah and then um but your guitar playing, I love the tone and you do these tasty little runs that are kind yeah. of they're 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 playful and articulate and I've just enjoyed the shit out of it. Yeah. And that that forever ago song, that's a that's
2: an all-time keeper.
0: I totally agree. James, is it true that that one almost didn't make the record?
2: Yeah, it is. It was one of the ones that up up through like the overdubbing stage and mixing stage that I was like, you know, the record's too long and I knew it was too long for vinyl, you know, yeah, the sure. sides were a little long. And so, yeah. um, you know, the, the engineer I was working with was like, you know, you really should cut one. And so that was one that I was, I'm so glad we didn't cut that one because it Same. really did end up being, you know, it's one of my favorites now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know when the change happened, you know, but, um, yeah, I, I appreciate both of you guys' feedback on that. I really, I really do appreciate it. Um,
0: yeah, it's gorgeous. It really is. And it's it's uh it's something that I think is becomes infinitely more interesting and delightful the more I hear it, you know? It's mm-hmm. like there are some that are uh, you know, beautiful day is one that is just yep. simply gorgeous. It's yeah, just like one of my and there's too. that's a I'm not a mute I don't write a lot of music, but I understand that like uh, to make to create something, to write something that is just simple and gorgeous and, and, and sort of just fits is not, uh, is no small feat, you know, like that's, that's a favorite of mine as well.
1: Yeah. So thanks. Well, um, I think we're kind of getting close to our time here, Joel, do you have anything you want to ask James,
0: (laughs) uh, James, uh, welcome to the lightning round. (laughs) so we've i mean here's the thing though it's like we've already kind of talked about a lot of your influences yeah yeah, yeah. so i'm gonna throw a little bit of a curve um but when it comes to music because i feel like you're you you, the folks at home can't see this but james is sitting in front of a tower of music that could you know topple over and end his life any minute now um What are some surprises? What are like three or four surprise albums, artists that uh, you haven't mentioned that are, they could even be guilty pleasures, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I'm not afraid to admit I love Kesha. So like, is there any, (laughs) is there anything that is like weird, obscure that you think we should know about, or maybe surprise um, uh, artists that you just, that you would take with you on a desert island, maybe?
2: Sure. Um, There's a band from... Uh, California, nineteen sixty-eight, I think,
0: mm-hmm.
2: called the David, and the
0: David, the David, okay,
2: yeah, and they put out a record called Another Day, Another Lifetime, okay, and um, it was on a small label. I don't remember what the label was, but um, some some weird label. Anyway, uh, years ago, a guy at a record store that I that I loved um, turned me on to turned me on to them, and. They are, they were a bunch of teenagers, like 16 to like 19 years old. And I think that they made a masterpiece of mm-hmm. pop, psychedelic rock that, that um, the guy who did the arrangements on the record, is pretty highly orchestrated. It's like a garage band plus orchestration. And the guy that did the orchestration on it later went on to be a very famous um, disco strings guy. So, like, you, you could hear in this 1968 record hints of later disco types of production treatments. Oh, like wow. the strings wow. play, like, the same hits over and over again and stuff like yeah. that. uh-huh. And the, so- the principal songwriter had a really special quality um, where he almost sounds a little bit like, um, like 80s British goth somehow or or like um like mixed in there's this melancholy sort of 80s vibe in this 60s record and i remember 10 years ago or 15 years ago when i first kind of got into the record there was nothing really online about it Mm. like the guy the psychedelic guys would be like it's not psych enough and the garage Mm. guys would be like it's too there's too much you know orchestration on it it's too they're too talented (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and nobody really. But what I, I noticed uh, recently, I actually found an original copy. It's been like my one of my grail mm. records to find an original copy. Um, that you know, they go a good copy goes for like a couple of hundred bucks on on discount. Wow. And I, I didn't really want to. I wanted to find one in the wild, and I, I did recently. And mm. so I looked it up online, and people are. It seems like people are starting to go like this record actually may not just be like. You know, a garbage record. It may actually be special, and it's interesting mm. to see how a record can go. You know, reputation-wise. I, I and I listened to it again recently, and I I still
0: think that it's a masterpiece. Mm, cool, love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So what's the next one? Give me yeah. a guilty pleasure. Give me, give me something that that you that we would all be shocked to know
2: well i don't know how it's not too guilty i, I don't know if i if i it, but uh, one of my favorite bands um from the 80s is men without hats nice sure yes, yeah. they, yes. They, they had the safety dance yeah, sure. yeah I love like it a big hit in like 83 or something uh-huh. but the, the record that was on um is called uh, rhythm of youth and that is a, a wonderful record and um, does that
1: have pop goes the world on it
2: no that was like the next they had a string of records there that are just brilliant so there was that one there was um folk of the 80s part three i think was the follow-up record and then mm. pop who's the world was the next one i, j- I just love that band I, I i can never get tired of them
0: i'm gonna have to do a deep dive on men without hats now because that's the, the yeah, safety that's dance awesome. is all i'm familiar with yeah. so i'll uh, i'll check it out wow um, well, thanks, James. What an honor! Um, it's been really great. Yeah, man. The yeah. album is is Bell Helium, and uh, you can listen to it streaming services, but we highly recommend buying the actual LP. vinyl. Uh, the LP. Sounds great. It's, it sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, what an honor, man!
2: Congratulations oh,
0: thanks, on the record, and I hope I hope you guys are going to get to play some of this music live. Hopefully, yeah.
2: I, I, I hope so. I think I think we will. I'm sure we will. It'll be in the fall, but yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Very cool. Yeah. Great.
1: All right, man. Nice talking with
2: you. Good talking to you. Thanks. Thanks, James.